0: This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen folks and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme...
1: What we're aiming at is to create a better human being. That's what we're trying to do with the human rights agenda, is just to better improve uh, uh, ourselves and our conduct. Someone asked me about Donald Trump. And I said, yes, I think he is dangerous. And uh, that became the headline out of the the press conference. If the UN Secretariat believed that it's in the friends' business, it, it produces catastrophic results. The UN is not there to become friendly with the member states.
0: Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen folks. In today's programme, it's time again for our special series marking the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And our guest today is Zaid Raad al-Hussein. He became UN Human Rights Commissioner in 2014, the first person from the Middle East and the first Muslim to hold the job. He had already spent time with the UN in former Yugoslavia moving on to work setting up the International Criminal Court, then to UN peacekeeping, and he represented his native Jordan as ambassador to the United Nations. I began by asking him whether a job defending human rights had always been his goal.
1: No, I I was far too immature and delinquent to to be thinking lofty ideas and profound thoughts. Um, It really was my first proper working experience after I uh, did my military service in Jordan, uh, which took me to UN peacekeeping and um, two years of service in the Balkans from early 1994 to early 1996, that um, first exposed me to the enormity of atrocity crimes, uh, the overwhelming emotional response one feels, the revulsion one experiences the senselessness of it all. From the hills above, you can hear the war going on between former allies in a town that was the epitome of ethnic togetherness. Central Bosnia has been gripped by a madness apparently without end. But the battle for the wider area goes on, village by village, with no mercy being shown on either side. There's nothing that can justify killing or destruction like that, nothing at all. And uh, I think all of us who were young UN officials serving in that mission came away understanding what hypocrisy means at a global level, what fecklessness produces, what fear produces. And I think many of us felt that if we were ever in a position of responsibility, we'd try our best not to rerun that early experience that we all um, had. And I think that was where I began to think about these issues but i i wasn't thinking human rights writ large I, I was very much looking at atrocity crimes and then later on um i sort of uh, almost f- also stumbled into the job of um un high commissioner for human rights i didn't want the job in the beginning
0: <laughs> and, i remember uh, you you said that that you if you'd have taken time to think about it you might have you might yeah. have actually turned it down
1: yes I my uh, intention at the start of 2014 was um, to leave the UN, but still live with my family in the in the United States. And in the end, I ended up joining the UN and leaving the United States. It was completely the opposite of what I was hoping for. So, so one doesn't know where fate one you know can take you.
0: Prince Zayed al-Hussein of Jordan is poised to become the United Nations' first Muslim and Arab High Commissioner for Human Rights. When you got to Geneva, was it the job that you expected?
1: Well, I, it's a job that's really quite complex in, in many different respects. And it took me three and a half years of doing the job to really feel that I, I knew it and I could master it. And I understood where the strengths were, where the weaknesses were. Um, Prior to my joining the office, I was tipped off by um, a highly regarded former employee at uh, OHCHR who said to me that this is a leader-resistant office, (laughs) that essentially (laughs) they they will go about doing their own thing and good luck to you, which is almost true. Um, There is work that the office does irrespective of who the high commissioner is. And then there's the individual signature that each high commissioner would apply to the to the office and the the extra that is brought or uh, sort of removed from the uh, office's office's work. Um, but there's much that will happen irrespective of who the high commissioner is. The supporting functions that the office gives to the treaty bodies, the UN treaty bodies, the um, special procedures, uh, the special rapporteurs of the Human Rights Council and supporting the Human Rights Council. All of that happens irrespective of uh, who's holding the office. And then it's whatever else one adds to to the office that, um, that separates each High Commissioner from the other.
0: You were quite outspoken. Not every Human Rights Commissioner is. People have different views about it. Uh, Louise Arbour said she was told me she wasn't convinced it was always the best move. She said sometimes she felt if you do it too often, you just reveal the impotence of the office.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I knew from my experience in the former Yugoslavia that if the UN secretariat believed, and I think mistakenly, that it's in the friends' business, it, it produces catastrophic results. The UN is not there to become friendly with the member states. The UN is there, talking about the secretariat, of which um, I was a part when I was high commissioner. The UN is there. It has, it's a principal organ of the UN, the secretariat, that is. It's on equal footing with the Security Council and with the General Assembly. And uh, I, we were in the respect business, not in the friends business. And I, for me, it mattered little whether they hated me or they disliked me or so forth. I think the point was, were they wary of me enough to take me seriously and to respond in kind? And I think that's what matters. Um, and if you're uh, concerned about maintaining easy relationships or being comfortable, then that's not the job for you. I, I'm sorry. I That's my view of it. And I think it's because I was a former diplomat and a former ambassador for many years, uh, having served in the Security Council in the Peace Building Commission, having been a peacekeeper on the ground, I sort of felt I knew I could push and and governments could take it. And in many respects, ambassadors would come after the telling off that I would give them, would come up to me privately and say, you know, my government deserved it. And thank you for saying it. And I'm going to oppose you publicly. But it was the right thing to say.
0: That's, that's an interesting point. You very famously made a speech about xenophobes, populists and racists.
1: Are we going to continue to stand by and watch this banalization of bigotry until it reaches its logical conclusion? Stop. We will not be bullied by you, the bully. Nor fooled by you, the deceiver, not
0: again. And you were talking about political leaders, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Nigel Farage, UK, and notably Donald Trump in the United States.
1: Yeah, it was halfway through my um, term as High Commissioner. And I thought, well, it's individuals who head these governments who pour this poison into their societies and it's a well-known poison. It's not a new poison. What they're doing, and so I felt um, when I had the occasion to to speak in The Hague, I felt it was the right time to. And I think I was yes, the first, if not the only, UN official to go uh, after these leaders uh, or so-called leaders, because they may be leaders in official sense, in official sense, but there's nothing about them that you know the opposite of someone uh, like Nelson Mandela, who's a real leader. Yeah, you know, someone who you deeply respect.
0: In response to Donald Trump on the campaign trail saying that he would torture. Would you allow U.S. interrogators to waterboard terrorist prisoners in order to extract information? Absolutely. And don't tell me it doesn't work. Torture works. OK, folks, believe me, it works. OK, you suggested that his election could be dangerous. Do you think that prediction yes, was proven I- right?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I remember the occasion. You may even have been there. It was a press conference, um, and uh, I think I spoke for about an hour and a half about everything else, and then someone asked me, possibly even you, <laughs> asked me about Donald Trump, and I said, yes, I think he he's dangerous. Uh, if Donald Trump is elected uh, on the basis of what he has said already, and unless that changes i think it's without any doubt that he would be dangerous and uh, that became the headline out of the out of the press conference i mean how could you not think that any thinking person that is uh, you know the first four years i mean it almost proved the point of uh, you know the damage that someone like him can do and then if he were to return to power in 2024 again it's the world is already so fragile how could it withstand the shocks that he could deliver to it? So I think it, it almost goes without saying that that that's the case. And uh, and I, again, you know, I think uh, when you look at the human rights agenda and and the work of of human rights, the real heroes are those who have forfeited their freedoms, uh, are in detention for speaking their minds, and haven't committed any wrong beyond just uh, stating. Uh, what needs to be stated. And I thought, well, I, you know, I'm not going to be put in prison for speaking out as High Commissioner for Human Rights. So what am I worried about? Okay, I may not serve a second term, but it's hardly, you know, I'm not doing it for, you know, my pension in the UN. I'm doing it because it, it's a huge responsibility. And and in the end, you have to, your primary audience or your primary uh, stakeholder um, are human rights defenders a civil society that's very much working in the human rights field, and I think that's that's what matters most. It's easier to withstand the so-called pressure from governments than pressure from civil society. I think if civil society feels you failed, you really have failed.
0: Do you count that as as one of your successes then, when you look back at your your time in office now?
1: Well, I, I think what I was I'm proud about is pushing where my predecessors also broke new ground. We didn't wait for a mandate from the uh, Human Rights Council to commission on a, an investigation and a, and a report on what was happening in Kashmir or what was happening in Venezuela or what was happening in Ethiopia or what was happening in Turkey. Or, and all of that was something that my, my senior staff and I drove and I'm proud that we did that because in the UN, and especially in New York, there are all these areas of the world which are untouched by the UN Secretariat for fear of a of a sort of <laughs> whiplash, a sort of response. And um, I felt that if the occasion was given to us, that we should not shy away from it. And I, I was proud that we proceeded on that basis. And I, I would like to think that if I was still in that position. We would have done an investigation on Xinjiang and the Uyghurs as well.
0: You bring me neatly to a couple of other questions, which are were almost certainly present during your time. Well, they were, I know they were, your time in office and still there now. And these are these ideological divides between among member states.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not new. Really, they were there, they were present um, in the uh, earliest negotiations on the formulation of uh, the Universal Declaration. And more particularly, once the Universal Declaration was adopted, principally because of the ideological divisions um, that persisted post the Second World War and the prevalence of the Cold War, the Western powers led by the U.S. were were very much focused on civil and political rights. And you had you know, many key provisions, including Article 14, the right to a fair trial, for example, um, and then the right to freedom of expression, uh, association assembly, freedom of opinion, and, of course, the incitement uh, to hatred provision. And uh, the uh, Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc very much focused on economic, social and cultural rights and, um, you know, the never considered joining the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. And, and so it's not a new division. I think the, the critical point for uh, OHCHR, the Office of Human Rights, is that all of it's important. All of it must be worked upon. Uh, all of it matters. And it's not, it's not a case of subordinating one to the other.
0: Can I ask you about the recent resolution on religious hatred? passed at the Human Rights Council which was in response to Quran burning in Sweden the proposal is therefore adopted
1: the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva adopted a motion condemning the burning of the Quran by an Iraqi man in Sweden late last month
0: Western countries either abstained or a lot of them voted against it they said that it challenged freedom of expression the Muslim countries led by Pakistan were very upset about this.
1: When the first cartoons emerged in the Danish uh, newspaper in in 2005, and there was a fierce reaction by uh, the Islamic countries, the uh, Muslim ambassadors in Copenhagen asked of the Danish government for there to be an apology. And the Danish government basically said, well, I mean, this is the, the law that exists in Denmark and muslims understand you know that the applicable law is the applicable law they understand that the what we should have said at the time is okay so if freedom of expression in your country is part of the legal tradition it's very much a constitutional provision then why don't you exercise it and condemn the cartoons basically because you already have a population a community inside of denmark that is um, in potentially a vulnerable situation. So exercise your freedom of expression and condemn what it is that's happening. Don't stay silent, which is what was happening. I think if Muslim countries see a ferocious response, verbally speaking, from those governments concerned, I think they would be largely satisfied. But if it's silent, you know, then, then are you inciting, are you by your silence basically inciting hatred toward a minority? But you're just you're tacitly you're just standing by and letting it happen. so if if you believe in freedom of expression, then exercise your right as a government to denounce what you see as provocative or distasteful or you know, unpleasant or hurtful. It, it may be legal within your country, but you can take a position on it. but if you stay silent on it, then I think there's a there's a problem.
0: A parting shot from the UN's human rights chief, Zed Rad al-Hussein, on what he has learned in four years in the job and where he believes the world has gone wrong.
1: The UN is symptomatic of the wider global picture. It is only as great or as pathetic as the prevailing state of the international scene at the time.
0: Looking back on your time as High Commissioner, would you, would you change anything? Would you have done it if you'd have known Sorry. beforehand what it was like?
1: Um, probably so. I, I, I think my my wife was always of the opinion that um, I was sort of destined to do it because I'd always been a little bit of an independent ambassador <laughs> or spoke my mind when I had been uh, permanent representative. But I, I felt that if I had another four years, I would have done. I would have done a much better job in my second term than in my first, simply because I understood what I was capable of doing in that position. But it only came in the last six to seven months of being in that position that I firmly understood how to do it. I really felt I had, I understood every detail of it. So I, I think, I mean, my my preference would be that that post be a single term, six-year post, because you could spend your first three years getting to grips with the vast agenda that exists, and the best way and best method by which you approach all the different issues, and then three years to really put it into best effect. It's not without reason that they choose four years. You know, you only have a UN pension when you serve five years, so they <laughs> so they they put give you four years and then dangle the prospect. You know. But I don't. Think, I think that's the wrong motivation. It's a hard enough job. I I believe you either do it properly, or you don't do it. It's not if you seem to be like any other, you know, UN job, and there are, there are many of them that one can do. I don't think. I think the motivation has to be in the right place
0: for this. The reason for this interview is, of course, we are marking the seventy-fifth anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which the current High Commissioner Folker Turk has called a transformative document do you think we're rowing away from the understanding of what we needed to transform that we maybe had in 1948
1: well i mean it's an extraordinary document because it at the it, one in the same time establishes the ceiling and sets the floor and it's the floor and the ceiling together yeah it it can seem to be unattainable in part you know um the point that I raise with my students, and I ask them the question every time I teach a course at university, I ask them, is human rights a strong and powerful force, or is it a weak force? Is it weak or is it strong? You can easily make the argument it's weak, because human rights, the two words, hardly ever figure in business literature. It's practically non-existent in many of the social sciences. You just don't see it there. And outside of a few centers littered around in a few universities in their law faculties, it just isn't present. And yet, if it's that weak, why are dissidents, you know, shot and hanged and and imprisoned, long terms of imprisonment? You know, you look at uh, Vladimir uh, Karamurtza in Russia. You know, if it's so weak, why is he in prison? Why are authoritarian leaders so terrified of it? Why would the member states prefer to have a weak High Commissioner rather than a strong one? You know, it's, uh, there is a reason for it, because it is potent. And I think it wasn't me who said this. It was uh, Louise Arbor who said this, that the Office of uh, the High Commission for Human Rights works in a space between a government and its people and strikes at the very heart of the legitimacy of that government is that government serving its people according to its own obligations toward them, it's immensely powerful. And I think um, the lesson to be learned uh, is that uh, if used wisely, you can apply enormous pressure, and it's an immensely powerful tool if used uh, if used effectively. In my opinion,
0: how would you like to see us perhaps rededicate ourselves to the values and principles in the declaration?
1: Well, I, I think it's. You know, it's recalling how the declaration came about. It was an extraordinary effort by principally five people. And and the words they used to push the document through all the different stages, I think it was very powerful. I mean, PC Cheng, the Chinese philosopher and the very direct contributor to the wording of the um, Universal Declaration, fundamentally got it right when he said, "What we're aiming at is to create a better human being." And that's what we're trying to do with the human rights agenda. is' just to better improve ourselves and our conduct and try and remove the avarice and the, the malevolence that exists deep within the human condition, and to separate the extremists who themselves believe that they're defending the rights of their people. From the human rights defender who believes in the rights of everyone, but certainly not in the right to take up violence in defense of a cause, but to speak out and use nonviolent means to protest conditions which are fundamentally unjust and unfair. And who can argue with that?
0: to those wise words bring us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva my thanks to Zaid al Hussein for sharing his thoughts with us a reminder you've been listening to Inside Geneva a Swiss info podcast we come out every 2 weeks on a Tuesday and coming up over the next few weeks we'll be looking at human rights in Russia at the hopes and fears for COP28 and we'll be continuing our special series on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as it marks its 75th anniversary. Feel free to write to us at insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Swissinfo is the international public media company of Switzerland, available in many languages as well as English, Check out our other content at www.swissinfo.ch. I'm Imogen, folks. Thanks again for listening, and do join us next time on Inside Geneva.
1: Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site, and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, Satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make
0: sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.